Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The epic Apple courtroom battle commences. But who will be the real winners and losers of this digital death match? You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. The promise of quantum computing is immense, but today's machines are small and limited. Can they live up to the hype? We're talking about problems that could take longer than the lifetime of the universe on conventional digital computers. And with a quantum computer, we're talking about being able to reduce that to a matter of maybe even days. And modern life is more sedentary than ever. Could understanding the evolutionary history of exercise help get people moving? We live in a world where people don't have to be physically active anymore. And we're going to have to find modern solutions to this very novel problem. But first... On Monday, September 28th, a judge in California heard the opening arguments in a case that pits Apple against Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, a video game. If you don't know Fortnite, talk to your children. At issue is whether the tight control Apple exerts over the App Store that distributes the software to iPhones amounts to an abuse of market power. The verdict, when it comes, may have significant consequences for the entire digital ecosystem beyond Apple. Epic, like a lot of app developers, feels like it deserves the uh, profits from its development work. And Apple feels that it has created the App Store and it is entitled to some piece of those profits. Mark Peterson is an antitrust expert at Fordham University. And so that commission is uh, currently 30 percent. And Epic decided that that was too much. So it tried to take an end run around Apple's rules and accept payments from its users of Fortnite directly to sort of circumvent the 30 percent. And that violated terms of Epic's contract with Apple. So Apple booted Fortnite off the App Store, and that ultimately prompted Epic's suit. So this first hearing concerned the narrow question of whether Fortnite could return to the App Store while the case rumbles on. But it's kind of a preview for both sides' wider positions. Epic argues that Apple's App Store is a walled garden. Are there any historical precedents for this kind of antitrust complaint? Well, you know, at some level of abstraction, the cases against Microsoft, both in the U.S. and the EU, are somewhat similar in that Microsoft didn't have a walled garden, but, uh, well, it wasn't, the walls weren't as high, or they had doors in them or something, but it still tried to keep competing pieces of software out, uh, different software in the U.S. and EU cases. Even the Google case in the EU recently has some resemblances, though it doesn't have a hardware connection like the Apple and Microsoft cases did. Okay, so to what extent does this case, Apple versus Epic, indicate an increasing momentum behind antitrust investigations? My personal view is that in this software area, 
there's so much interaction between products of various kinds and antitrust law developed at a time in which uh, products were more easily defined. Um, physical products have clearer boundaries than software. And so I think firms have taken advantage of the malleability of software, I guess I would say, and design their products in a way that they work best if everybody stays with their product. So for example, Microsoft integrated Windows and Internet Explorer, which made Netscape Navigator not work. Apple is taking advantage of the fact that its iPhone works with the App Store, which works with the system for in-app payments. And it's claiming that all of these things interact in a way that promotes safety and security. But because it's hard to know from the outside just how Apple has designed these products, I think that's created the problem. And all through the computer industry, I think we've got this situation where it's very difficult for antitrust regulators to know how the products fit together and what's the best way for them to fit together. And to some extent, uh, regulators are relegated to accepting the representations of the firms that are presenting their products in a different way. And I think the pressure has been building. It's also very frustrating because if antitrust as a tool can't really intervene in a software market, in a digital marketplace, because everybody likes the value of integration and it would be too onerous for it to try to predict the future and know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, we would rely on the market to sort of restrain firm behavior. But here, Epic's saying that the marketplace isn't fair. So what is a regulator, what is a business, what is a consumer to do? Well, absolutely. And what Epic has chosen to do is sue. And that puts the onus on Apple, at least could put the onus on Apple to defend what it's doing, and also puts the pressure on antitrust law to develop new approaches that will help us deal with the software industry in a way that promotes competition. Well, the judge did say, quote, in my view, you cannot have irreparable harm when you created the harm yourself. Yeah, I think Epic would contest the fact that they created the harm itself. I think they would say that they created this immediate harm, but that they've been suffering harm all along from Apple's extraction of fees. And it's a much more compelling presentation this way. And I think Epic wants to demonstrate to both its users and to the public what the stakes are here. And what do you think the next step is in the fight? Well, I mean, the judge will decide whether Fortnite will be allowed back on and under what conditions it will be allowed back on the App Store. And then presumably the parties will will go ahead and prepare for trial, which the judge suggested might be in July. Or, or they could also settle. I mean, I, I think that Apple's in an interesting position here in that you know, Apple's got a lot of customer goodwill. Um, and to the extent that Epic can, with the aid of other app developers, present Apple as making you pay a 30% tax to it for the use of the apps developed by somebody else, it's possible that Apple will feel that, you know, there are reputational effects here that it's not worth trying to pursue this case and it might try to settle. On the other hand, this is a huge amount of money coming into Apple. And so if Epic insists that to get out of this case, Apple is going to have to give up a chunk of those profits, it's going to have a, a tough decision to make. And beyond these two parties, why is this fight so important for the future of the digital ecosystem and marketplaces at large? In the digital ecosystem, I think we've got this problem of interrelated products where the interrelation might be 
important or might just be a means for extracting more money from us users. And this case might help us develop a way to try to make that determination. I mean, you know, the question is, what does Epic have to show here to demonstrate to the court that there's enough concern to force Apple to justify what it's doing. I think Apple's justifications of safety and quality and security in its software are largely assertions. And so one of the questions is going to be when, in the course of the litigation, if at all, is Apple going to have to justify and explain those arguments? And to what extent does it have to prove that what it claims is happening is happening? You know, in terms of markets in general, I think this is a typical business model now. Firms make money by extracting small amounts from large numbers of transactions. I mean, you see it with ATM fees, you see it with Apple's 30% on app purchases and in-app purchases. And that's a lot of money leaving the hands of consumers in a way that it's not clear that we're getting value from that. And so to the extent that we can split up products and ask what justifications are required in some of these sorts of cases, the markets might work better. Mark Patterson, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This first hearing was, of course, only the opening salvo in the epic Apple legal battle. To follow this story as it unfolds and much more besides, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. This week, there's also an analysis of which countries have an edge when it comes to cyber power and the discovery of a new species of burrowing dinosaur. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is also in the episode notes on your podcast app. In the early 1980s, physicists dreamed of a machine which would use quantum mechanics, understanding the motion of subatomic particles, to solve previously insoluble mathematical problems. The first practical algorithm for a quantum computer was designed in the 1990s, but a functioning machine was still a long way off. It was only a year ago, in October 2019, that Google, in partnership with NASA, could claim to have performed a quantum computation beyond the means of any classical computer. Big, stable quantum computers could be hugely useful. Many industries are looking forward to the gains such devices could enable. But today's machines are limited, unstable, and finicky. Can quantum computing live up to its promise? Inside your conventional computers, you have bits. These are basically strings of zeros and ones. Inside a quantum computer, you don't just have bits. It's based on quantum mechanics, so now it has the capability of operating on something called a qubit. Christos Vori leads Microsoft's quantum group, developing this futuristic technology. And a qubit is in a superposition, a quantum mechanical state that's a combination of zero and one. This is one of the many properties that a quantum computer takes advantage of to achieve speedups for certain types of problems. We're talking about problems that could take longer than the lifetime of the universe on conventional digital computers. And with a quantum computer, we're talking about being able to reduce that to a matter of months, weeks, or maybe even days. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. Tim, who would use these machines and what for? 
One big one is chemistry. So at the moment, for most chemistry, we can't really simulate it accurately. So for any reasonably complex molecule, the maths of the way that all the electrons in the atoms interact with each other, which basically adds up to chemistry, it's just intractable for a classical machine, but it's doable for a quantum computer. So if you can do exact simulations of chemistry, you could increase the efficiency of catalysts, maybe tailor-designed drugs or medicines, any kind of material science. You know, it's not really sexy stuff, but it's the kind of stuff that underpins everything from like better batteries to better medicines to better materials and just really making chemistry a kind of computable science in a way that it isn't at the moment. And then the other big use case that people told me they were excited about was this thing called optimization problems, which again, is this really broad category. But basically, if you've got a whole bunch of different variables and you're trying to kind of juggle them all and find the best outcome given a whole bunch of different constraints. So, you know, how do I maximize revenue, say, subject to a whole bunch of constraints or something like what's the best way to route my delivery vans through this complicated road network? You can get to sort of approximate answers with classical machines, but the hope is you could get to much better answers with quantum ones. So again, that's got applications in things like logistics and the finance industry is very interested because so much trading now is done by algorithms, if you can have a sort of more optimized algorithm, then you can make more money doing trading. So I love your term, if or when. These machines don't even exist yet, really. What's going on? Well, they do. They just exist in a sort of small and fairly limited form. So the first machine was built in the early 2000s. And these days we have machines that are bigger than that. So at the moment, we do have quantum computers, but they're sort of small, they're kind of hard to work with, they're, they're sort of grumpy and ornery. And the phrase that everyone uses is, is NISCs, which stands for Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Computers. Now, not all quantum computers work the same way. There's different flavors of them, aren't there? There are. And this, this isn't like the classical computing industry where everyone decided 40 years or more ago that silicon transistors were the way forward. There are dozens of these companies and they're all using loads of different technologies. So several of them, um, including a firm called INQ, who are based in Maryland, they use trapped ions of an element called ytterbium, which they sort of zap with lasers and they perform their calculations that way. You can also use pairs of electrons flowing through superconducting circuits. So IBM do that and another startup called Rigetti. There's a company called PsiQuantum that does its computing with photons that run along little channels etched in existing silicon chips called waveguides. Microsoft is working on something a bit more left field called a topological quantum computer where it relies on the way that super cold electrons react with each other. But there's no real consensus at the moment on what's the best technology to make this thing a reality. Krista, as Tim said, Microsoft is building a topological quantum computer. Now, quantum computers are much bigger and much more complex than the sort on my desk. Where will the Microsoft quantum computer be when it's built? So the first thing is a quantum computer is not going to sit in your pocket anytime soon, right? It requires extremely low temperatures, temperatures that are almost absolute zero. And so it sits within what's called a dilution refrigerator. So it's, it's something that's almost the size, you know, or even bigger than a human. You're going to access that quantum computer through a cloud service and then be able to use it within your larger compute environment. I like to think of a quantum computer as an accelerator that I use in conjunction with all the other compute at my fingertips in the cloud. Tim, the computer scientists who work on quantum technology pull out their hair and say that they're inherently unstable, which makes them a nightmare to use. Why are they so upset? What, what are the problems that they're facing? 
So without going into too many details, quantum computing relies on these two weird quantum phenomena. One is called superposition. So you take those superposed bits and then you entangle them with each other, which means that when you do an operation on one, it affects all of the others. Those two states are really delicate. So the slightest amount of interference from the outside universe, so a tiny little blip of heat or a stray electromagnetic pulse or whatever, causes the whole thing to collapse and become useless. And it's really hard to keep these systems isolated. So the upshot is that you've got tiny fractions of a second where these states are stable, in which you have to do your maths before they get overwhelmed by environmental noise and degrade into uselessness. Now, Krista, do you think that eventually there will be a standard model for quantum computers, or will there always be different flavors? I do think that eventually, as we scale up the system, we will understand which flavor of quantum computer will scale the best. But there will be a role for different types of qubits, most likely, when we think about interconnecting quantum computers, a different type of system may be used to connect those quantum computers. So there is a role for various types of qubits in the larger ecosystem. And then, of course, there's a huge role in also the classical computing required to develop and then also operate the quantum computer itself. So, Tim, when they overcome some of these issues, where are these machines going to go first? Well, so this is the sort of 64 million billion dollar question. The status quo at the moment is that there are no known commercial applications. And some of the people in the field worry that the hype is kind of running ahead of reality. But having said that, I think you could keep an eye on the finance industry because one point that was made to me is new drugs would be great, new batteries would be great, but these are sort of physical products that you have to test in the real world. So maybe keep an eye on the finance industry because if you can come up with a sort of cleverer algorithm, you can deploy it within a couple of days. And just because of the size of the markets, even if you can eke out a tiny advantage, like if you're 3% better than the next guy, that translates into an awful lot of money. And we know that several of the big banks and finance houses are looking into this. And there are, there are finance startups as well trying to find ways to sort of commercialize this. I think that will be an interesting place to keep an eye on. The question, of course, is if you did find a really cool new finance algorithm that needed a quantum computer, you'd have a strong incentive not to tell anyone about it so that you could carry on using it. Tim Cross, Krista Swarey, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. And finally, the working human body is a marvel, and one that is all too easy to take for granted, until it stops working so well. And the way humans live now makes it particularly hard to keep a body in good nick, as they say in Britain, 
good shape, as we'd say in America. The modern world is abnormal, right? We live in a world where people don't have to be physically active anymore, and we're going to have to find modern solutions to this very novel problem. Daniel Lieberman of Harvard University studies how and why the human body works the way it does. His research has combined paleontology, anatomy, anthropology, and experimental biomechanics. He's best known for his work on the science of running. Anybody who's ever taken their shoes off and gone for a walk on the beach knows that it, it feels good. You have all these sensory nerves on the bottom of your foot, and it, it feels terrific. And, and we're kind of out of touch with our bodies. And it turns out that if you take your shoes off and run down a street, it also feels pretty good. The worst thing is gravel or, you know, acorns or large objects. That's no fun at all. I don't do it because it's, it's supposed to be healthy or anything like that. I, I do it because it's fun. But for many people, exercise is not fun. And that makes total evolutionary sense, says Professor Lieberman. In his latest book, Exercised, he's gone back to our prehistoric ancestors to better understand how we use our bodies. There's sort of two aspects to our bodies. There's the aspects of our bodies that we inherited, you know, the genes, the programs that make our bodies grow the way they are. And then there are all the environmental effects that interact with how our bodies grow and develop. And the result of that, that interaction is what we often call mismatch diseases, right? So mismatches are where our bodies are imperfectly or, or inadequately adapted to the modern environments in which we live. And, and one of the biggest mismatches is that, um, is that we evolved to be physically active um, and we never evolved not to be physically active. So the result of sustained physical inactivity is increased vulnerability to a wide range of diseases, more rapid aging. In a sense, you were born with the same body as your hunter-gatherer ancestors, but your body has developed differently because of how you use it. So we have bodies that evolved to hunt and gather, but for many of us, we're living more stationary lives. How do we square that circle? What's the learning from your research? Well, the, the most fundamental message of the book is that, you know, yes, we evolved to be physically active, but not crazy. You know, the average hunter-gatherer is out there you know, maybe for two and a quarter hours a day being physically active. That's it. That's not a huge amount. Um, and they sit for most of the day. Um, but that two and a quarter hours is still uh, important because that physical activity has all kinds of benefits. It turns on repair and maintenance mechanisms. It, it affects pretty much every system of the body. Uh, it has all kinds of beneficial effects. But you should also know that our ancestors didn't evolve to be physically active in order to be healthy. They evolved to be physically inactive in order to increase their reproductive success. We've medicalized and commercialized something very strange. And, and if we continue to treat physical activity or its modern version, which is exercise, in this purely medical and commercial way, which is you know, not entirely bad, we're going to continue to have misconceptions, which is like to try to to oversimplify and, uh, and prescribe something and then also make people feel bad if they don't want to do it. It's completely normal not to want to exercise because exercise is fundamentally an abnormal behavior. Now, it is completely normal not to exercise, yet at the same time, we know all the benefits of exercise. So how can we sort of dupe ourselves to exercise where we don't naturally want to? Yeah, well, I think that that's um, really, I think, probably going to be the most contentious part because we evolved to be physically active for just two reasons. One is is when it's necessary in order to go out and get food every day and, you know, hunt an animal or pick berries or dig up roots or whatever it is our ancestors did. And then sometimes we were physically active because it was fun. 
And so I think if we want to be physically active today in the modern world, some people manage to do it because they coerce themselves or get addicted, etc. But the vast majority of us, I think, need to adhere to those two kind of precepts, which is that we need to make it necessary and we need to make it fun. And, and we don't do a very good job of that. Just telling people to do it uh, doesn't really make it necessary. Uh, just because your doctor tells you to exercise isn't going to necessarily get you to exercise. Um, we, we need to kind of build it into our, our world. And, and to do that in a way without coercion is going to be challenging. So the, the more we can make it social, the more it'll be fun. Because most for most people, doing something socially makes it fun. And the more we can make it necessary will also help. So I, I, I think we should treat exercise the way we treat education. I mean, think about education. It's, it's equally abnormal. I mean, in the past, nobody got educated, right? There was no, nobody read until a few thousand years ago. Uh, and now we, we make school both necessary and fun. You know, you have friends and singing groups and what, all kinds of things that make school a, a generally enjoyable feature, but we also make it basically very necessary. And I think if we figure out how to treat exercise in the same way that we treat education, uh, we can help more people do it. For individuals, what can people do if, like me, they're slothful and they don't want to be physically active? If you're struggling to be physically active, don't blame yourself. Don't feel ashamed. There's nothing wrong with you. You're completely normal. And ask yourself, what are the ways in which being physically active can be fun for me? You know, is it going for walks with friends? Would it be uh, signing up for a, a race that forces me to get out and train? Would it be hiring a trainer, going to the gym? Find out what you enjoy, because ultimately, that's what's going to help you uh, be more active. And, and I think the other thing is that we're a very interesting species. We evolved to live very long lives as grandparents. Most creatures basically don't survive past their reproductive age. And the more we learn about physical activity, the more we, we learn that physical activity as we age is, 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 is incredibly important. So the older you get, the more important physical activity is. So retirement is not about going to Florida and kicking your feet up on a beach. Retirement really is about spending that extra time and going for walks and bicycle rides or swimming or whatever it is that you enjoy, enjoy doing because that will have huge effects on your, your mental health and your physical health and your bank balance as well. Daniel Lieberman, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Thank you so much for listening. And while you're with us, please take a moment to tell us what you think. Give us a rating and leave some comments. Review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, exercising, of course, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.